Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. Please also consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to our next topic. Peace. All right. Yeah, we got all of us on now. Sean, we were just uh, we were just chatting a bit about um, some of the international guests, including uh, Professor Noakes and uh, Dr. Unwin was just talking about uh, some of the charity work that they've done together this year um, in terms of the public health stuff. So it's kind of kind of interesting. I think Sean might still be on mute. Go on mute. There I am. Welcome. Yeah, I've got a couple uh, rambunctious dogs in a room. I just took them for a quick, uh, their quick morning walk. It's early. It's early a.m. here. Thank you for coming on. It's a pleasure having you. Been reading about all your wonderful uh, sort of exploits over there in the U.K. and how you're saving gazillions of dollars and more importantly, you know, helping people with their health. And I think that's just to, to be lauded. And uh, hopefully, there'll be more physicians. Uh, like you that that they can continue to do this stuff. Um, I've talked with your wife a little bit online a few times. I know she she was doing some stuff. You know, I know she has an interest. I think in uh, addiction, if I'm not mistaken. I know she talks around something around uh, yeah, perhaps sugar addiction and stuff like that. So it's interesting. So let me um, just let let tell our folks a little bit about your background for those that aren't aware of you, because uh, you know I certainly have been kind of seeing what's going on, but there may not be people people that have heard what what you do okay so i'm an old gp i've looked after the same community of 9000 people since 1986 and uh, in 1986 we had just 57 people with type 2 diabetes and they were mainly over 60 or over 65 and then in the next 25 years i couldn't believe what i was seeing it was so depressing because now where we have 57, we've got 472. That's an eightfold, that's an epidemic. It is so serious and so depressing, and I'm determined not to accept it. I really worry that when my generation of doctors has died out, who will remember that when I was young, I didn't know anybody with type 2 diabetes, nobody. I knew absolutely nobody with uh, and hardly anybody with obesity. It was it was rare, really rare. And in the practice, they were mainly, we called it maturity onset diabetes, or better still, sugar diabetes, because that's what it was. And, and it was for older people, and it didn't matter that much. Uh, but see now, I've seen now in the in the last 25, 30 years. It's affecting younger and younger people. And they, they of course, have a long time to get sick. Hello. <laughs> they have a long time to get sick. But the point was I got madder and madder about it and more and more upset. And uh, then I had, a, I had a eureka moment in 2012 when a patient walked in and she hadn't been taking her drugs for diabetes, for type 2 diabetes. I could tell that from the computer screen. And I'd actually invited her to come in for a telling off because she wasn't taking her medication. But when I saw her, she looked fabulous. 
absolutely fabulous. And I was fascinated to know what she'd done. And she joined as like a secret society. And there were 40,000 people in this secret society online teaching each other how to go low carb and improve their diabetes. And when I went online, the scandal was that those people were being ridiculed by the healthcare professionals and warned about the dreadful risks they were taking and that the cholesterol would go up and they'd die. I was embarrassed for our profession. And so I decided that I would represent those people and help them. And that's what I've done. So that's a sort of potted, potted history from my eureka moment. And in the first 25 years, by the way, that lady, she had reversed her diabetes, but I never saw a single case, not one case in 25 years of somebody with diabetes reversed, not a single case ever. I was amazed. Absolutely. I didn't know it was possible. And now I'm seeing things like that at least once a week. I saw two people yesterday who I'd taken off drugs uh, with diabetes in remission. David, that's a, that's a wonderful story. You know, there's, a, there's an old TV show. I'm not sure if you, maybe you're familiar. It was called Doc Martin that I used to watch, which kind of reminds me a little bit of the, you know, the, the GP in the small town, you know, with, yeah, the, that, with, the, with the folks. And I thought that's just kind of, just kind of gives me that, that impression. That's what I am. I'm a GP in a small town and it's, it's a wonderful profession. I love it. They can't get rid of me. Uh, they know the, me and I know The, uh, the nice thing about that is you, you know, being one of those smaller places, you've got such a good pulse of what's going on. You know, you, you, you look at the population and you can see these huge trends going from 57 people to 400 plus people having diabetes. That, that's, that's just a tremendous increase. And, you know, many of us have seen that and, and, you know, we kind of just sort of everybody's gotten fatter and and kind of blamed it on that. Um, It's almost as though we've kind of become apathetic to it. You know, we accept it. You know, we accept a lot of things that are sort of, quote, unquote, common. They're very common now. And so we we conflate that to normal. And and by no means is that supposed to be normal. We're not supposed to be seeing four-year-old children with type 2 diabetes, which we now see, which is just it's maddening to see that. And I'm glad it, you know, it angers me too. I'm glad it angers you and hopefully it should anger all of us. I sometimes think, where is the rage? Where is the fury at what is happening to our communities and the whole families I'm seeing? The waiting room, the people in the waiting room look completely different. Again, when I started as a young man, you know, those sort of very heavy people with two sticks in middle age, with, they're badly inflamed, they're suffering terribly. They're on, I don't know, gabapentin, all these stuff, uh, and opiates and things for pain. Those people didn't exist in 1986. The, the waiting room was quite different. The world has changed, and, and we must fight it. We must fight it. No, I agree 100%, and it's it's uh, something that uh, we, we have to, you know, I don't know what's going to have to happen. Let me ask you, because you're, you're, are you part of the NHS, the National Health oh, yes. System? Yes. So, I mean, I don't know. Obviously, you're saving them money. And, you know, where I, where I live in the U.S., it's in many cases a for-profit for care. Even the nonprofit hospitals, there's, there's a lot of money being made. And so it, it seems like it might even be easier there for something like this to uh, be accepted, you know, just from a financial standpoint, because uh, in theory, it's not a, a revenue generating system. At least I don't understand it to be. Um, are you getting any sort of uh, resistance from your colleagues 
What about what do the other people say? Because I'm sure you've seen people's cholesterol go up uh, from time to time as you do this. And it seems to be variable. Some goes up, some goes down, some it doesn't change. That's been my experience. And so what are your what are your colleagues or are, are, do you have any local colleagues that you have to sort of defend this sort of uh, practice to? I do. It's changed a lot, actually. When I started, it was quite clear to everybody that I was utterly bonkers. And uh, But gradually, first of all, in the practice, even though I was senior partner, other partners felt I should concentrate on seeing sick people. And uh, so they wouldn't allow me to spend my time on this low-carb nonsense. So I was forced to do it in an evening with my wife staffing it. So we did it for free to begin with. But after a few months, when they saw the results that we were getting, the partners, one by one, uh, came on board. I'll tell you an amusing thing to do with running. I, I love running. And one or two of the partners, and obviously I'm an old guy, but one of the two of the partners, I could outrun them. And they couldn't believe that. It's so humiliating to be outrun by an old guy. And that really made them think. It made them think that, well, that's odd. What's going on? Well, how can he run uh, without any carbs? And that helped it spread in the practice. But then when uh, we started getting significant drug savings, gradually in the UK, there's a lot of interest. So I run, um, I, we have a Google group, just a doctor's Google group. And I think I've got 370 doctors on this Google group. That's how it's spreading. But also the Royal College of Eri the Royal College of General Practitioners. I'm the national champion for diabetes um, and obesity. And as long as I don't say anything too mad, the Royal College actually are very supportive. And they they have published. I wrote um, a 30-minute low-carb tutorial, an e-learning tutorial for GPs, and it's available to all 52,000 GPs in the UK. It was published this summer. Uh, so I've been really encouraged. And although, uh, yes, I was thought of as mad at the beginning, it isn't really that complicated. It isn't weird, is it? You know, so sugar's not a great idea for people with type 2 diabetes. And bread breaks down into a lot of sugar. And so as long as we talk physiology, there's no need really to fall out with people. And also, I think the other most important thing is choice is that I don't make my patients do anything. And I, I, I think you're a little the same also with this keto business. It's a matter of choice. And try it. And if people feel great, well, wonderful. And if they don't, stop it. I think the big thing, don't corner people uh, and be reasonable. Uh, the, my big thing is being reasonable and trying not to frighten people. Because you never will. We have people who would die rather than accept what we say is true. I'll never argue them over. But the reasonable people in the middle will give it a go. And increasing numbers, um, they are. The best thing, I think, was you may have heard of diabetes.co.uk. Well, this is an interesting story. So... Um, the 40,000 people who were on this secret society were a low-carb forum as part of diabetes.co.uk. And so I went on that forum to say, hurrah, I've come to save you all. I'm, I'm going to represent you. I will publish. I will fight for you. And they immediately suspended me as a troll. 
because they'd never come across a, a doctor who would support them. They didn't believe I existed. They thought I was just going to rubbish them any moment. And they had me investigated. So they sent the top brass of diabetes.co.uk up to Southport to check that I existed and see um, what, what I was about. And we became the best friends. And that they were just doing a low-carb program, which is, I think it's about 10 weeks, half an hour a week. Only they didn't have a doctor. So they'd written this low-carb program with no doctor. But they, they'd really learned what the 40,000 people had told them. They took me on as a, a medical advisor. That low-carb program went out. I think so far 307,000 people have done it. So that's a lot of people with type 2 diabetes giving it a go. And it, it gives me hope. Dr. Irwin, that kind of brings up a, a topic I wanted to ask you about, too. And when, when you uh, spoke about kind of the, your approach where you're not trying to make anyone do anything specific, but you're 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 kind of letting them come to you more or less. Um, you know, I think like as the high fat or ketogenic diet has kind of gotten more popular, one of the big uh, calling cards has always been like, here's something that someone with like diabetes can use to kind of, uh, you know, help with those or get off medication and stuff like that. Um, and then the, the, the backlash, I guess has been, um, that you can do the same thing with a high carbohydrate diet. You just have to be disciplined. You have to be strategic about how much you eat, when you eat and all that sort of thing. And, you know, to me, that means then it comes down to a compliance type of a situation. Like, well, what is the person able to comply with in order to stay at that um, proper area where they need to have their, their diabetes manageable? Um, so is, that, or is what you're seeing that when the patients are coming to you that they're just a much better able to adhere to like a ketogenic diet? Um, or are you seeing kind of like, what are you seeing from that, that side of things? Yeah, that's interesting. Yes, there are, you've got to be fair, there are different ways to sort out your diabetes. Yes, you, you, uh, you can exercise loads. You could um, go on a very low-calorie diet. You could have bariatric surgery. So you've got choice there. What I find with a, um, a low-carb approach, people are amazed that the thing I'm told Day after day, every day actually, is they're surprised not to be hungry. That's the thing. These are people who have been hungry all their lives. I was hungry till I was 55 years old. The sort of person was always watching my kids to see if they'd finished their meal because I'd finish it for them. Always thinking about the next meal, never having any peace in my head. And the thing I hear from patients is that this isn't difficult. It's not unpleasant. They don't feel starved. They don't feel hungry. And um, the point is, I'm a pragmatist, really. I just want to help my community. I'm not that fast if it is helpful how I do it. And the point was, for 25 years, I tried all those other things. And I never once, not a single time, did I see diabetes put into remission. I didn't know it was possible. So I wasn't able to coach my population in those other approaches and i find now mainly talking about sugar and where it comes from is not complicated I, I i have 10 minute appointments i can get it across very quickly and then 
um, I encourage the patients to measure your waist, get on the weighing scales, and then they soon get feedback and learn how they're, how they're doing. I never actually, in my practice, I never met somebody who sorted out their diabetes with a high-carb uh, approach. I know they exist, but in, my, in the north of England, I never saw that happen, not once. Do you think that's kind of partly because of uh, just nowadays, like, or I guess in the past, if you were on a high carbohydrate diet, you'd actually have to still like go out of your way, I guess, more or less to eat in excess. Whereas nowadays it's so easy to eat in excess with hardly even lifting a finger. So when you take an approach with a high carbohydrate diet for, you know, at least a, a portion of the population, it becomes... Uh, unmanageable to 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 regulate the cravings and you know regulate the self control required to kind of keep things in balance. Whereas for some folks, it seems like with the high fat approach, they're much easier. They have a much easier time saying, "Okay, I already ate and I don't need to eat again for X amount of hours or until I'm hungry." And then that's just a a better balance for their their own personal body. Keyword is moderation. It's an interesting word. I used to use it a lot, but actually for many of my patients, moderate carbohydrates is impossible for them to do. I've seen three people in the last month crying, actually weeping about their efforts to give up bread. A lot of people will think I'm making that up, but I'm really not. There are people who cannot manage moderation um, with carbs. They simply can't. And that really was another light bulb moment for me when I began to see uh, the behavior of so many of my patients was similar to people with an alcohol problem. So I've looked after people with alcohol problems, obviously, for decades, and they really struggle. But imagine if you were, had a problem with carbohydrates. Uh, there's bread in everybody's fridge. There's carbs everywhere. And I, I, we mentioned addiction earlier on, and that's something that Jen's looking into. I, um, I think that uh, addiction is a real problem, and it's a, it, it's a problem for patients of mine who go on a diet, come off it, the yo-yo weight people. Uh, addiction, we don't talk about it enough, and that's why moderation is a problem for so many of the uh, population, because at a certain level, they're addicted. I know, uh, as an example... I was addicted to biscuits in terms of I was using them to cope with stress. I used to have them in the top right hand drawer of my desk. And if I saw, a per, you know, some of the people you see, they're very stressful to deal with. So some patients would be like a five chocolate biscuit patient. Where I'd have to eat five biscuits to face caring for them because their life was hard or whatever, or they're very demanding. And other people might just be a one biscuit person. I, I really used, in fact, it, it got to such a point that I remember one night we did our own on call and I got a call for somebody with chest pain and Jen caught me in the kitchen eating biscuits, not going on the call. And I was using biscuits to sort of, I don't know, somehow that I could feel, I could cope with this thing that I had to go and do. And she said, go on, get, stop eating, get out there now, you're an idiot. Uh, so it, so I'm sympathetic because it's happened to me and it's great when you get rid of it. 
it, it's great when you, you don't have to think about biscuits because it's a bit humiliating, really. As I answered, that was a bit of me rambling. I don't know. Did that answer your question? Yeah, no, that, that, that was great. I guess um, one of my, I guess, kind of follow-up questions, too, is uh, um, I think a lot of times with when we, we go carbs versus fats, you know, which one should you do? Should you do all of one and none of the other or a balance? Um, and then sometimes protein drifts kind of off into the back burner a little bit, although it's certainly, you know, high on some people's priority list in terms of topics. Do you, what do you, what, what do you do with like a client who comes in and kind of wants to do, uh, a high fat approach or a ketogenic diet? Do you have them monitor their protein closely or is that something you're a little more liberal with them on or how does that kind of work? It's really interesting. Well, it, it's, it's, it, I see it as a spectrum really so with the patients you know um it's like where are you with sugar and where would you go next so they're moving over years so some of them have been doing it for five years and what's very interesting over time they tend to go more keto over time so initially they'll give up sugar and they'll give up biscuits and they feel a bit better and then i encourage them well you know what we're we doing with rice and bread particularly you know or, do you want to lose a bit more weight? And then they'll give up some more. Of course, my average patient, you know, they weigh 100 kilos. So they've got quite a lot of fat on board to be burning for a while. So that that's another factor is what does the patient, how heavy are they and how much fat have they, they got to burn? Um, so that after a few years, some, some of them lose weight for about three years. And then we can start uh, when they've used up their reserves. Because I had people I couldn't weigh. They were too heavy to weigh. Nobody knows what they weighed at the beginning. But then as the years go on, some of them, we can get them on the scales. And then eventually the weight plateaus. And then we've got some choices, really, of so if you need more calories, what do you, first of all, what would you find tasty and what would make you feel well? Um, the protein thing is is... Uh, very interesting. I think quite a lot of older people may not have enough protein. I saw a really interesting guy um, about two months ago, and um, he he was very thin. And what's interesting is when he since he's gone low carb and increased his meat intake, he's gained a kilo in weight. And that's muscle, which I'm really pleased because he's walking better now and he's stronger. So that particular person quite clearly uh, needed a lot more protein. And I think he was having sugar and not having, um, not having protein. But then again, I've got other patients where protein gives a sort of delayed increase in blood glucose. Uh, and it varies from patient to patient. But some patients, a load of protein isn't always great for the blood glucose. Uh, particularly fish can do that for some people. So it's, it's a really complicated thing, is that. And again, I, I try and encourage people to experiment and see, well, how do you, what makes you feel the best? Let's measure stuff and see what, what makes you feel the best. Yes. Hey, David. So, you know, obviously your focus has been on, on diabetes, but surely in the, you know, the six years you've been approached doing this low-carb approach, you've seen other conditions that have resolved probably hypertension, obviously obesity. Uh, you know, I just I know we talk about I talk about the using this as a, as a, a low carb approach for treating diabetes, but 
I, I just can't help but see all these other conditions that we would be surprised by these. You know, I'm seeing people with autoimmune issues with uh, joint pain, you know, that, that resolves in absence of weight loss, which is which is really interesting to me. And so I don't know, have you had similar observations in your practice with what you do? Yeah, loads, um, all sorts of things. So the first was I, I keep very careful records of uh, the patients that go on this and we measure, one of the good things about being in the health service is the blood tests don't cost my patients anything. So I do a lot of blood tests because I'm so interested in the results. And the first thing that really amazed me was the improvements in liver function. I got people I'd been nagging for years about alcohol and it wasn't alcohol at all. The liver function was improving within weeks uh, when they gave up carbs, that surprised me. And I got one or two cases of fatty liver reversed on ultrasound. I wrote a paper on that. I was so um, excited by the blood results when they came in. Related to that, I'm seeing generally improved lipid profiles. Um, so actually the cholesterol on the whole, on average, drops significantly. And I've done hundreds of patients now, not for all of them, but it tends to drop. The HDL goes up. Triglyceride, that's a really interesting subject. Uh, I never really knew what to do about triglyceride before, a high triglyceride. I just used to fudge it and say, we'll keep repeating the tri triglyceride. Yeah, it's a worry. Let's repeat it in six months. I didn't have a single idea in my head what to do about triglyceride. Now I can reliably get a triglyceride down by a third on average. Often it will halve. So those are a whole load of things. Then you get the surprises. I agree. Uh, those people with vague inflammation, joints, um, irritable bowel syndrome, that sort of thing, some of those come back amazed, amazed. I've also seen psoriasis magically go, and eczema quite commonly, um, and uh, acne as well. Uh, then, uh, then you've got the respiratory stuff. So I had uh, one young guy really brittle asthma and he was going into hospital every now and then I'd looked after him since he was a child and I really used to worry about his asthma but he um, I, I saw him the other day now how many stone has he lost I don't know what six he's lost six or seven stone wow. which is I don't know how many kilos that is but it's many many kilos but anyway he's not using an inhaler at all uh, and he was on loads of them so I, I agree I'm constantly fascinated by the, the new ramifications of this. I also think mental health. Um, I, I, people, some people with anxiety and depression are coming back having spontaneously come off their antidepressants. And um, again, I, can, I, run, I do a lot of my work in groups of 20 people together. We do it in the waiting room. Partly because it's fun, but it also you get patient experts who teach each other. And a real uh, wonderful woman stood up at the last meeting and said she can't believe the difference to her mental health that giving up sugar has made. And that recently her husband could tell when she cheated because she, he could tell her personality had gone back to as it used to be. Um, and I put that on Twitter and then there was a load of fuss about me saying cheating as a negative thing. But that was her word. And, and she said it was so interesting to go back to the way she used to be. And she never wants to be that, that person again. So it's 
so odd. I'm beginning to wonder, you know, so what aspects of medicine are not affected by diet? And it's, it's humbling really, isn't it? Because we think we're so important as doctors and the drugs are really, really important. And I'm such an important person because I am a doctor. And then, you know, I, I went through a phase of thinking psychology was really important because my wife's dead clever and she taught me a lot. But then finally, right at the end of my career, I'm learning that diet trumps psychology and trumps uh, many drugs. Diet, so fundamental. I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't lived through it. So, yeah, diet, really important. David, it's, it's you know, at, at some point, you know, you come to the realization that people are not suffering from a deficiency of a drug. I mean, and that, you know, we've, we've been given tools when we go to medical school, we learn about the, the biochemistry, the pathophysiology, how to diagnose things and how to treat them. And it's almost always some sort of active intervention or, uh, you know, pharmaceutical intervention or a procedure. And, and that's been in our toolbox. You know, that's what we that's what we know. But then you realize these people aren't suffering from a uh, lack of metformin. They're not suffering from a lack of hydrochlorothiazide. I mean, but it takes a while to, to get that out of your brain. And, you know, pathophysiology disease is not some deficiency of some man-made drug. It's, it's just, it's just such know, a basic concept, but it's so hard yeah, to get across to people. That so much, Sean. It really does. It isn't that your metformin gland has packed up. <laughs> this isn't metformin replacement that you need. And I think, do you know, I think we've stopped being scientists. We're not asking why. So, you know, essential hypertension. I remember asking in, in the doctor's common room, I wonder what the cause of essential hypertension is. And I was laughed at and said, don't be silly. That's why it's called essential hypertension. It doesn't have a cause. How bonkers is that? And I think we really, we need to get serious about the causes of illness. And until we do, we will fail. And I was failing for 25 years. And all I had was a, just a, a sense of wrongness as I added the drugs and added the drugs and looked for side effects. And also I noticed that nobody, I'm very interested in nature. I always have been. Uh, I'm very interested in, I keep animals and all sorts of things. And I noticed that my patients didn't look healthy in the way that wild animals do. And I never understood it. And Often now I see people who look properly healthy and that does my heart good. I've done something right. You can tell it in their eyes. When they, within the first few weeks, their skin improves and their eyes look different. I can spot them from the waiting room. Uh, I saw somebody yesterday. I could tell, even without my glasses on, in the waiting room at a distance of 25 feet that she'd, she'd given up the sugar because she, she was just shining with health. And it's not a thing I used to see very often. So I think we need to ask why. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be more curious now and ask why. Um, and a lot of the answers seem to be to do with insulin, as far as I can see. And another thing, too, I think magnesium is another interesting thing, but insulin has a lot to answer for, probably glucagon too. Dave, I mean, that is, I mean, that's very profound, you know, and I, you know, when you come in and someone prescribes you an anti-inflammatory, the question as a patient, you should see, why am I inflamed? Absolutely. That should be the question, not what do I need to do about yes. it? And, and we do. And I think part of that has to be uh, due to the fact that, you know, 10 minute appointments, eight minute appointments, you know, you know, the, the, 
the documentation that you're faced with. You know, it's 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 become it's almost a, it's 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 like a machinery, and you can't take a second to stop the machine to ask those why questions. You know, God forbid you spend half an hour trying to get to the root cause of what's causing your patient's illness rather than just process them through, write your prescription, type it up on the computer, send them on their way and see you in six months. That That is unfortunate. And it's, it's I think it's harmed as many physicians as it has patients because I think yeah. there's a lot of physicians that are extremely frustrated. Uh, so you know, all specialties. I think many of the drugs that begin with anti require a bit of thought. So an antidepressant, that's interesting. I mean, they do help some people, but how can, and you know, what are the causes of depression? How about relationship problems? How about debt? How about you hate your boss? How can my antidepressant tablet help you when your girlfriend has chucked you? And, and we don't spend, we just give people antidepressants without really going, why is this person unhappy? And it, sometimes pain is a signal to do something differently in your life. I've been very unhappy once or twice in my life, and it was nearly always a signal to do something different. So I agree. All of the, particularly the uh, anti-inflammatories, we've been uh, showering people with those. And they do affect renal function on the long term and put up blood pressure. I've seen people hemorrhage uh, uh, with the GI side effects. Um, so, yes, let's be a bit more curious. Medicine's far more interesting than... I used to think it was all reduced down to what to prescribe and what investigations to do and who to refer. I tell you, I do a thing with young doctors. I do train young doctors and I put them on a desert island and I say, now, you're going to do your best to help this imaginary patient and you can have no drugs. You can do no tests and you can refer them to nobody. You are just going to try and help another human being. And how are you going to do it? What an interesting thing. And it gets wonderful feedback from the young doctors because it connects them with why they became doctors in the first place. Um, and, we, you know, you want to make a difference. You want to see people um, healthier. So there we are. And now a brief word from our sponsors. Sean's been using ButcherBox for a while. Sean, why don't you tell us about some of your experiences? Yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, basically mostly just going with their custom boxes. I've been going with uh, ribeyes and uh, New York strip steaks. They're all uh, grass-finished, antibiotic-free, hormone-free. They're actually pretty decently marbled for a grass-finished product. I've been enjoying it. Lately, I've been throwing it on the, on the, uh, in the sous vide and then uh, reverse searing or then searing it up in a cast iron pan. That's been pretty darn tasty. I've enjoyed it. Uh, the consistency I found on pretty much every single steak has been very high, very good and very high. Uh, flavor's been good, and I really enjoyed it. I think uh, you know, looking around at some of the other competitors and some of the other grass-finished products that you might get in the store, this is actually a fair bit more economical. And so I think it's a, it's a good value, good quality, and, and, and a very uh, you know, enjoyable, flavorful uh, way to get your steaks. Thanks, John. So that's ButcherBox dot com promo code hpo now back to the show it seems like with a lot of these cases nowadays um you know you go into the doctor's office and you get a you get a handful of minutes with them and it's 
it's uh, they they almost have to move you through, and there's no time to sit down and actually dig into the individual and what would maybe work for them and create more of a lifestyle medicine approach where you can actually look at the different like kind of pillars to health and work them through those. Um, and do you think that's something as like kind of a society we almost need to take a step back in terms of the way our our health our health system is kind of currently structured and so we need to kind of go back to what we were doing before where when you go see a doctor you go and actually see a doctor and look at these things um and first take action with lifestyle and then as a last resort start going to maybe some of these like anti this and that type of thing i think that's a great idea i i or at least shouldn't we offer patients the alternative so shouldn't we say, you know, do you want three months to try lifestyle medicine? And, and if that fails, then maybe metformin. So that's one thing. Young doctors are getting really interested in lifestyle medicine. I did a conference recently and we thought, uh, we thought maybe we'd get 30 young doctors. But at 250, with a waiting list, we had to block. We couldn't allow anybody else to come. And those people paid to come and give up their Saturday in Leeds in northern England. We absolutely, the place was stuffed. Young doctors are becoming interested in lifestyle medicine because it, it helps resilience and it, it's more fun. Because again, why did we become doctors in the first place? To connect with other human beings and help them. Um, giving, I don't know, giving drugs doesn't really feel like that. So I'm hoping that the internet is, is sort of democratizing medicine and changing some patients' expectations after all, it was patient. It was a patient, the first patient to taught me, and those patients are teaching doctors all over the place. And if if we could be more humble, um, and more accepting of, of change, we could learn such a lot as as I have. And actually, I'm very grateful because I've had a lot more fun, and I could have retired years ago. But it's it, this idea of lifestyle medicine, very interesting, way beyond uh, diet. We've in our own practice now, we, you won't have heard of Park Run, I don't suppose, but it is an international thing. We support running on a Saturday morning with our patients, with our staff, and hundreds of people go. We've got a, a similar thing, a park walk, which is just people who don't want to run, but they could walk. And um, I think diet and exercise together are very strong, very strong. It's a bit difficult though, as I say, if you weigh 100 kilos, it's difficult to start with exercise first, but it's amazing how many of my patients, when particularly uh, when they've lost weight, which they do, then they, they, they feel lively, they get bored and they, they come in and tell me, you know, I've started jogging, I've started going to the gym, um, whatever. David, let me, uh, two comments, or three comments actually. You know, one of the things I think is that we, the problem is we have such a huge number of sick people now, whereas maybe 50 years ago, there weren't as many sick people. So now doctors are just overwhelmed with appointments. There's no shortage yes. of people that have knee pain and back pain and hypertension. And, you know, the list goes on and on. And so the numbers have increased. So that, that puts pressure on it. Um, let me ask you uh, the other point, learning from your patients. I mean, I think that is so important. I mean, this secret society, you have to go to a secret society online to learn how to treat diabetes because patients are doing it and we're falling down. I think that is uh, that is a very important concept. And, and I think you can learn a lot from your patients. But let me ask you personally, 
what is your relationship like th with the community now? Do you feel like a different relationship than you did 10 years ago? I mean, do you, is it nice to go out and about in a small town and see your friends getting better rather than watching them continue to get sick? How does that make you feel personally? Very happy. Very happy. You know, I, the number of people I see, uh, so it's ridiculous. Some of the farmers roundabout have lost weight. My electrician has come in and I just chatted to him and, and he's lost, he's completely changed. The decorator has lost loads of weight. The butcher, you know, my local butcher, um, he's lost a stone and a half and he looks amazing. So it's, it's truly here becoming a community thing. As I become well-known, people see me on television or whatever and give it a go. They're not all my patients, but they're, they're having a go. And what's also very interesting, I think um, I used to worry that, that patients would take advantage, that if I didn't have that barrier between me and them, they'd be pursuing me, showing me skin rashes in shops and things like that, and I wouldn't have any control. What is really good is we've been running these groups now for five years. And at no point, no time have I ever felt um, a, a, a sort of a, as if they, I'd wish they wouldn't approach me. It hasn't been a burden. It's been a happy thing. And it's had me more central to the community uh, um, rather than before I was slightly protected. And, and I don't think I needed that protection. I've, I find the patients are very respectful and know I'm trying my best. And it, it, I, I, the thanks I get, I mean, before, how often would people come in and shake my hand and say, thank you so much? Not that often. Now, honestly, I'd say that happens on a daily basis. Shake my hands, give me a hug. Thank you for what you've done, doctor. Wow, that's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's a much better, and, and that's what other doctors are finding. Uh, and, and when it happens, it's so sincere and so genuine that it, it, it weighs a lot more heavily than many of the papers you might read. That belief, when you see people better, you believe in a, a fundamental way. When I read a paper, I think, well, maybe, perhaps, um, maybe, you know, vested interests are everywhere, aren't they? One point, are you going to ask me about my animal keeping? We can what sure go ahead. Okay. Yeah, let's let's hear about your animals. <laughs> okay, so we've been uh, producing our own meat for years. And it, it came from, partly because I really like animals. And uh, I remember one time, 25 years ago, I went walking with a friend. And he said, what would you, what would you like to do? What's important? I said, I'd love to keep pigs. And he said, well, why don't you then? You know, otherwise you'll just grow into being a fraud. So you shouldn't say stuff that you're not prepared to do. And so I, 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 I kept a pig in the garage. And of course, I kept it well, but we did eat it. We did eat it. And I learned to, to look after pigs. And they're such fun. And uh, they deserve respect, really, because they're bright. They're bright. They're intelligent things. And I've got a pig at the moment, and they love being brushed. They love being brushed, and uh, I couldn't, I couldn't bear really to eat pork that I hadn't raised myself. Now, uh, they, they, I really like them. And then after that, I went on to. Uh, I've had hens for thirty years at least, and ducks and geese. 
Then last year, for the first time, I had a cow, my first ever cow. I thought that'd be fun. And it is. It is. And that, that was a, a, a lovely cow. Uh, but sadly, now delicious, because we're, eat, we're eating our way through that cow. And it's, I think what I'm saying is something about uh, respect for animals and, and keep them well. And I would either pay more for meat or I will re raise it myself. And for me, living um, in the centre of a town wasn't an excuse because I had a pig in the garage. So loads of people say, oh, you can't do stuff. Well, maybe you can. And, it's you know, it uses up every bit of your household scraps. That pig is so excited when I go in, you know, what's in the slot bucket? They just, uh, they are so happy. They like food just like, like, uh, like, like we do. Anyway, I just wanted to share my enthusiasm for a sort of kindly keeping of um, kindly keeping of animals. Um, and, but as I say, I'm not vegetarian. We do eat them. We have four freezers because that's necessary. Oh, we keep sheep as well. Uh, I do mutton, so we keep them for much longer. So I keep the sheep up to two years and grow them as big as I can. Uh, they have a, a longer life. Um, and they grow bigger, and I, I quite like sheep. So there we are. That's me and animal keeping. Not a that's lot a, of people know all that. That's a, that's, that's a wonderful, wonderful situation. It reminds me when I lived in New Zealand for a while. I went down there and played rugby for 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 a time, and uh, I remember walking to the neighborhood. And everybody had sheep in their yard, you know. And uh, yeah, I think the same thing. It was just the neighborhood, and so it's uh, and, and this was a you know a, a suburban. It wasn't a farm community. It was a suburban type area and they had sheep everywhere so it, that is wonderful and, and hopefully i would say you know why 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 would anybody have a pet rabbit they're so boring <laughs> but why not why not have hens because hens will lay you eggs i've got three hens laying eggs every day if you can have a rabbit you could care for hens in an aviary and i really like them and they add to my life uh, and and for children uh, a, a great thing anyway you didn't I don't think you wanted me to go on about animals endlessly, but I'll stop there. I, th I think it's, a, it's an interesting topic because like, you know, when, especially when you start getting into all the variety topics when it comes to animals, like as what are they, as a, are they food, are they pets, are they this, that, and the other thing. And it's like, you know, ultimately we're all connected and it's like humans are more or less domesticated, certainly in the first world countries. And it's like, but we don't necessarily want to domesticate the animals because that's not natural for them, but we're more than willing to domesticate ourselves. Yeah. And like, so when, when you hear stories like yourselves, where like your, your, your story where, um, you're, you're very much reconnecting yourself to that, that process of, um, giving that animal a quality life and then ultimately using it for your own health and well being um, is, is, almost completing the circle as, a, as opposed to like kind of removing yourself from it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think it engenders greater respect for the animals. Um, so many young people eat whatever they eat, but they have no connection with where that food came from. Whereas in a farming community where we are, um, everybody knows about animals, but you, you also have respect for them. So my grandchildren, know that we will eat the pig, but we will look after him really well for now. Uh, and I, I think that's better. Uh, you're talking about domesticating humans. I think so many people live like battery chickens, eating battery chickens. 
and it's sad for the chickens and it's sad for the humans, um, really. Um, yeah, most interesting, and that leads on to care for the soil, all sorts of things that really matter. Um, the, the, I'm very interested in um, in ecology, and I run various bird sanctuaries, learning about how to look after blocks of land. And it, it's part of a whole, as you say. We can't divide ourselves away uh, from caring uh, for the land. Well, that's, that's so true, David. Let me ask you, just kind of change gears a little bit, because I know you, you know, when you sort of open this Pandora's box of I'm going to treat people with diet and wow, look, 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 look at all these new things that happen and all the things that these patients can teach me. What other sort of interventions, you know, when we talk about lifestyle stuff, do you find? I know you mentioned the park runs. Are, are you finding any other things that you that you recommend for your patients other than, you know, a low carbohydrate type diet? Are you playing with their sleep? Are you talking about other sort of modalities that might be effective? And, and which ones have you found to be uh, reasonably effective thus far, if, 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 yeah, if any? I think I'd like to begin by, again, one of the lessons I, I've learned is I used to be far too... Um, I don't know, directing my patients as regards exercise, telling them what they ought to do. And I've stopped telling people half so much. So I would always begin with, if you, know, if you were to exercise more, which exercise might suit you? And I've asked a question rather than telling them what to do. Also, they can't answer yes or no. So that then cognitively something more interesting happens where they're beginning to think about, well, what exercise would I do? And then you discover that a lot of women particularly don't like to go swimming because then they have to do their hair. So you find out, you know, they'd rather do other things. Well, I don't care. So I encourage people to think about what exercise might suit them. And the, the answers are very interesting. So I've got patients that go dancing. Great, that's actually very good exercise. I've got patients that run up and down stairs. I've got um, patients who do brisk walking, just a little bit of brisk walking, or use cans of beans and lift them up and down. So I would, I try not to recommend specific things, but inquire what might suit them. And I think also trying to find out um, about people's broader lives is also very interesting, so that uh, what what would be fun, particularly if you're going to take away the takeaways, if you're going to take, you know, if they can't, they begin to wonder, well, what's left in my life? Because you just took away cakes and biscuits and chocolates and crisps. And that's what I, you know, so I, you have to get some other ways of celebrating, other ways of, of enjoying life. So I try and investigate what somebody might think is fun because having fun is kind of important, really. Um, I certainly, so I, I have some things I think may be more beneficial. I think exercising outside is probably a good thing if you can do it. So I, I love running or walking and I'd be a bit sad to do it in a gym, really. But that isn't to judge other people who quite like the social scene in, in a, a, a gym. So it, for me, it's more, it isn't about advising people what to do with lifestyle. It's about asking them what aspects of lifestyle might interest them. Uh, my wife would tell me it's because doctors, we, we're, 
we think we know best for everybody. And actually, it's better to ask questions because people are quite often experts in themselves and have, have points of view about they just need a little bit of support. So, so often people have thought about maybe running, but they haven't thought that's their goal, but they haven't thought of the next small step, which would be maybe, well, why don't you just uh, run for a little bit and then walk, walk and run, walk and run, and then you can maybe join up your, your running. So I, I try and investigate what are the patient's goals and in what, how would their life be better for that? And I'm very interested how your life might be better for whatever you think are your goals. And then my next thing is, well, what would be a small realistic step towards that? And then why don't you tell me when you see me in a few weeks' time what you did? And that's really great fun because they come back then, uh, they come back with photos of what they've done or telling me what they've run or the times they've achieved. And that gets away from the sort of, you know, the medicine that's obsessed with problems, patients as problems. So I'm trying hard to see patients as opportunities and patients, I inquire about their successes and it changes the dynamic in the consulting room completely where they're now telling me good stuff. And I still run to 10 minutes. Uh, so you, you, you can, you don't have, it doesn't have to be miserable. So again, it's slightly complicated answer, but generally I try not to advise people to do things. I try and inquire within their health what they think might be helpful and encourage them to do it. That's that's really encouraging to hear too. I think uh, you know every time I I go to the to the gym, you know I can't help but notice there's usually someone in there who uh, uh, it's pretty obvious that they just got word from their from their doctor saying, well, you need to go to the gym three times yes. a week and work out because you know they show up in a pair of jeans or something like that. And it's like they, you know they're there because they have to be there, not because they want to be there. And, yes. you know, my first thought is always like, you know, you can move your body in so many different ways. You may as well find a way to do that that you enjoy. So, um, you know, some people just need a little bit of help, I think, investigating, well, what do you actually want to do and how can you turn that yes. into exercise? So, like, your example of, like, dancing, I think, is an awesome one. Um, and I think there's just, like, a host of other ways like that, too, that if people just focus on movement the way they enjoy it, it's going to be more sustainable. They're more likely to kind of make it part of their lifestyle and uh, make it work for them as opposed to be kind of this uphill challenge. I think we, we see the world through our own prejudices. So because I'm a runner, I think everybody should be a runner, you know. And, um, so that at least I know what my prejudices are. So it's not very useful to suggest to some of my people that they should run. So I find this discipline of asking if you were to do something, what would be fun for you? Some of them love team games, which is another great thing uh, in teams. Sorry, I interrupted. No, I, I just wanted to make a couple of points. Um, one is when you approach pe people, who do you find that tends to be most receptive to sorts of message? Do we have to wait until people are desperate they have you know it seems like that's often the case people aren't willing to make the change unless something they're very sick they're in they're in great deal of suffering or pain and i think how do we how do we get people to avoid the illness in the first place because this is ultimately where we want to go i think is is not creating so many sick people and so have you had had any success that maybe you know you get someone's parents that are suffering from disease and then the children see that and they see that I think um, I'm always early in, on, which I think. 
sorry, you cut up there. Uh, another one of the disciplines that, that I, I've tried to impose upon myself is looking for what I call a golden opportunities. I wrote a paper on this, golden opportunities, those moments when people are open to suggestion. So it may be that they've just had a hemoglobin A1C that showed them in prediabetes. And for a little while, they're really interested. And then I want to show them that their future depends on them, that we're mainly, I can't, I can't protect my patients from ill health, but they can do far more themselves. And so I try and show them a better future. Um, and there are opportunities when they're a little bit frightened or when somebody's fallen sick in the family. Or sometimes I just notice they've got a big belly. And I say, you know, crikey, where's that come from? Do you want to talk about how we might get rid of that for you? And... The most important thing I'd say is if you if you ask those questions, please wait for permission. So I say, do you want to talk about how to get rid of your belly? And then I do wait because some of them don't. But you'd be amazed at the, no, the number of blokes, particularly who are really interested in getting rid of middle age spread and would rather deal with that uh, now than wait for diabetes. So, again, part of the uh, the way that may be different that I um, practice medicine is I'm endlessly looking for those golden opportunities for people who the door is slightly open and I, I can just prize it open and offer a bit of support and hope and not wait. But there are other ones. Um, one of the strongest things I feel is people whose type 2 diabetes control is really bad and, and the specialists are wondering about uh, using insulin. They're a really motivated group. They're a really motivated group. And I've had some of my best successes with the people whose diabetes is the worst because they want to avoid insulin. And that's a win-win situation. Um, so, again, a slightly complicated answer. But I think the thing is, is to be open to those opportunities. And I'm always looking for them, partly because it's the most fun way to practice medicine. David, what, what do you say to other healthcare providers, whether they be physicians or nurse practitioners or, you know, all, we've got all, all kinds of different people that are involved in this, uh, in, the, in the healthcare field. How, what have you found to be an effective way to implement uh, this type of practice? Is there things that work? Are there, are doing, setting up uh, patient uh, forums, uh, support groups? What what is what's effective and what tends not to be effective? Is there a way? Is there an advice for somebody that wanted to start out doing this? What would you say? How how would you approach that? Yeah. I think so. I'd always encourage people to uh, try and work with their patients. So be find out what your patients' goals are, because often as doctors we assume that the patient wants their hemoglobin A1C to be improved. Actually, very few patients, they're not that interested in haemoglobin A1C, but they are interested in wearing jeans or going to a party looking great or breathing better or playing with grandchildren. So as doctors, if we could link in with what it is that the patients uh, want to achieve in terms of health goals, and then you're working together. And that feels really great when you're working together with patients with shared goals. And then, again, this repeated asking of why has been so useful for me um asking why and also being honest when i don't know the answer there's so many things that we don't know uh, but be honest um about it in terms of how we can get the message out there there's loads of things um i think many of us are starting to do public 
speaking, which I do a lot of in the UK. I'm coming over to Colorado, I think, next March. The big low-carb thing there. Uh, Jen and I, we do role play sometimes, so we can demonstrate to young doctors, well, you could, why don't we have a go? As a pretend patient, that's another way uh, to do it. I think some of my patients have been really good and have agreed to talk about how it feels to be better. And that's great because in hearing patients speak sincerely about their experience, really people believe it. It's got wonderful credibility. Or even photos. And, and uh, you've probably seen, I do graph of the week on Twitter, which is my patients love it if they can be graph of the week because they're so proud if they get to be my graph of the week. And then I can say, you know, maybe 50,000 people saw your graph and are inspired by what you've done. And that's great because we've turned somebody, maybe possibly with low self-esteem, into feeling a bit of a hero. It, that's great stuff, isn't it? Um, there's lots, so many different ways. And each of us, I think, tries to improve the world in a, in a different way. Uh, so again, I hesitate to tell anybody else how to do it. Do something. Do something. And if something works, do more of it. I think I think that's just sound practical advice. I like the fact that you put things in patients' terms. I mean, really, no one care, no one really knows if their systolic blood pressure is one twenty five or one forty five. It doesn't matter to them. What matters to them is you know how do they feel? Are they having headaches? Are they feeling lightheaded? Are they in pain? Those are the things that actually matter to patients, and we get too preoccupied with slicing and dicing the data and these little numbers sometimes. And I think that. That's really a disservice to some of these folks. And uh, well, we, med we medicalize them, we turn them from people into patients. The minute you're told that I'm slightly concerned about your systolic blood pressure and they go away saying, how high is it? We've just done a slightly wrong thing because we've medicalized them and turned somebody who thought they were all right into somebody who worries. So I try and avoid that if I can. Uh, try not to worry people, but in, empower them with useful things uh, that they can do to improve their health. And then a means of, you know, just a tape measure probably would tell you how you're doing with your belly very um, easily. I'm going to have to go fairly soon because I've got to get on a train and you've got to get somebody from school or something. I've got to, I've got to feed my dogs or meat and my son his eggs yeah. here. In a few minutes. I, haven't, I haven't said that you're both heroes of mine. Because what you do is amazing, completely amazing. Do I say that? Well, I got to tell you, you know, I, I don't know if you know, Zach just broke the world record for the 100-mile trail run. I do know. Just... My son told me because he followed. <laughs> and uh, my my 25-year-old son thinks he's amazing. And so, yes, no, I, I, I was it two days ago it was done, very recently. Yeah, it was just this past weekend on Saturday. So I'm yeah. kind of fresh back from that, recovering. <laughs> yeah, well, no, well done. Because uh, in doing that, you're proving what's possible. And the same for you, Sean. When you, you, you do it very well, you do it very well, where you're saying, hey, this is me on meat. Okay. I have to go because the taxi driver has arrived. Oh, okay. well, we thank don't want to make so you much. late, but thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, we'll put your uh, social media handles and stuff and contact on the show notes so listeners can find you and uh, um, <laughs> let you know how, how, they, how they enjoyed your, your appearance. <laughs> Isn't it, it's been a great privilege, a real <laughs> privilege. 
Let me uh, say, I, did, I just smiled the whole time. It was wonderful having you on. It was just a, just a delightful interaction and just hearing about your uh, your practice and how you approach life just put a smile on my face and it started my day in a very nice way. And thank you for well, that. put a smile on mine as well. <laughs> it's made me chuckle and laugh. I'm going now to the taxi. Gotta go. Think about animals. Goff I go. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye, David. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.